Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another overcast and blustery day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Stephen Stockley, Managing Director of Foster Talk, an independent, not-for-profit organization dedicated to supporting foster carers. Stephen, hello. Uh, hello. Hi, Matthew. Thank you for coming on the show today. Uh, now, normally we'd go straight into the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID-19 outbreak, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, firstly, how uh, the restrictions have affected your organization, and secondly, what effect has this had on the foster caring community? Okay, yeah. Um, from our uh, our own point of view, from Foster Talk, um, it's created uh, a lot of financial um, issues for us, but it has produced some opportunity for us. We've had to look at different ways in which we can support our fostering community. Uh, we have a membership service, so we're supporting over 30,000 households in the UK, uh, and they have a variety of, of issues and problems that have um, been seen through the COVID-19 um, pandemic. Uh, I'm a foster carer and an adopter myself, so I've been at the front end of some of those issues as well as uh, the, the MD of Foster Talk. Uh, we've seen with foster carers, nobody could have predicted uh, this coming, but they have had really their support network has been decimated. Lots of foster carers rely on their family and friends uh, as support for the, the children they, they care for, and they've seen that removed. Um, they've become very much isolated. And, and we've had to um, step up our support. We've had to look at different ways that we can support uh, foster carers. We've looked at uh, making sure we're keeping in touch with those carers um, because they, they've really had to um, become uh, teachers, therapists. Um, they've become social workers for those children because all of that support has been taken away. Um, so they, they've had a very, very difficult time. And... Um, uh, it, it's had a huge impact on uh, not only the foster carers' mental health, but the children's mental health. And there's been some very disturbing um, reports that we've received uh, over the past three months. What can be done to combat this? We've worked very closely with uh, the Department for Education. Uh, we've worked closely with the local authorities and some fostering services. Um, but we've been able to... Um, really rely on our, our, our influence with the Department of Education through the foster line service that we run. So we run uh, a service for all foster carers in England through the Department for Education. So that's been able to, for us to reflect um, what we're seeing in the in the situation and be able to report that back into the government. And it's enabled to, us to have conversations direct with the Children's Minister. And uh, the Children's Minister has been really proactive and she's um, listen to what we've had to say. She's put um, she's she put into place the promises that she made to to the um, fostering community, and it's increasingly uh, what is it? It's a very very difficult job to try and find the right answers and solutions. Um, but on we've worked with the government and with the uh, new scheme that the government put in place to look after um, children, to put more support into children in care. They uh, we've actually extended the foster line service. So now we can provide one-to-one uh, -one support through virtual um, platforms. We've also put um, a financial experts in place so that we can talk about the financial impact that it's had on uh, the fostering community. So that's really positive that we've um, 
been able to talk to the, to the government. We've been able to talk to uh, local authorities that are being um, very um, proactive with their carers, that they are looking at the payments they're putting to their carers to try and support them. Because all of the uh, foster carers are, are in that unique position that although they are self-employed, they don't qualify for the government schemes that are helping other self-employed um, members of our, of our community. Mm-hmm. So they've had to rely on universal credit. Um, so we've seen local authorities where they've, they've maintained payments for, for holidays, um, breaks. They've looked at additional payments for their carers to make sure that they um, cover the costs of the additional um, um the, the additional needs of their children uh, within place. But they've had a very, very difficult time um, and it's affected them not being classified right at the very start as key workers. So, mm. so some of the support has been, um, has not been there for, for those carers. So preferential times for um, for deliveries from supermarkets and attending supermarkets. I mean, can you imagine a, a single foster carer with two or three children um, having to take those children to um, supermarkets, they've got no other uh, means if they can't get onto the priorities for um, produce deliveries. Um, they've, they've had a lot of lot of difficulties, and, and the minister recognised that, and she raised the status of foster carers um, to uh, to be classified in that key workers from from basically from our campaigning to to the minister. So fantastic. Uh, it, it, it's it's good to see um, the government trying to to um, change and trying to put more uh, resources in place, but it takes a while for that to filter down to to the foster carers. So it, um, we've got a role in supporting them until that support gets to them as well. Well, we should move on to the subject of leadership. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question: What does the word leader mean to you? Uh, to me, um, it's leading by example. It's making sure that we're true, true to our values of the, of the company. It's true to make sure that those values um, are expressed through our ethics and the way we, we behave as a, as a, as a community. Um, we really do believe uh, within uh, Foster Talk that we are uh, family-based care, uh, and we have to show those values to all of our service workers, to our um, staff and uh, our employees as well. So leadership is really about um, standing up for what we believe in, it's um, showing the right way. And, uh, you know, also, also uh, a good leader will also admit when they've got it wrong and look at um, how we alter and how we change things as well. So feedback is important. Um, and um, it's really making sure that we, um, as I say, we, we're true to our values. And how would you say uh, that you came to your style and belief on leadership? Did you have any role models who shaped you in this way? Yes, yeah, I, I have. Um, um, if we, we we look back at sport, uh, for my own personal um, um, position, I, I was very much uh, involved in football uh, um, and cricket and athletics. So it was looking to people um, who inspired me early on. So... Um, uh, I, I'm a big Leeds United fan, so um, the, the great Leeds United team um, in the 70s, uh, the Don Revere inspired me, looking at people like Daley Thompson. Um, I remember um, the, the Olympics and somebody that uh, was an elite in their in their sport and the drive and the commitment they had. Um, yeah, I, I, I can 
pick it out across lots of sporting uh, venues and looking at people um, across their, their dedication and um, their commitment to what they were actually doing. So, um, yeah, I, I, it kind of drove me drove me on to my um, um, sporting life, and I've taken that really into my working life, and and, and that's what we do within our organisation. It's very much a team effort, and it's very much inspiring um, the team around us to be the best that they can. It's looking at um, encouraging and developing uh, the people around us, and you see that in all team sports. That um, uh, this, this position, the specific roles that people played in um, in sport, you. I remember reading things around. Uh, you got like Nobby Styles used to break up the play with England, uh, going back to our greatest ever um, sporting achievement in football, winning the World Cup. That you've got a role where Nobby Styles are breaking up play. You've got, um, you know, Jack Jack Charlton wasn't the greatest um, Rolls Royce defenders, but he did a job. But then you got um, somebody who was so smooth with um, uh, Bobby Moore behind that uh, just dictated play and, and led that that team through. So. Uh, I think we t- we take our inspiration from those that are around us in society into our working role. Absolutely. Now, unfortunately, our time together has drawn to its close. Uh, but Stephen, before I let you go, what does next twelve months have in store for Foster Talk? The next twelve months are important for us at Foster Talk. So we've identified um, through this pandemic the, the the need for mental health for children in care. Um, we've had reports that. Um, over 50% of the children in, in care have suffered with their mental health. Uh, we've had that the foster carers, um, a third of the foster carers have suffered with their mental health uh, during this pandemic. We've changed our business strategy of providing um, our support on a virtual platform. That will continue going forward. We've looked at the productivity of our organisation and how we've enabled uh, our workforce to remain at home and what and how that's been beneficial to them. So going forward, we will look at different strategies uh, into the business to have that work-life balance um, a little um, for the for our workers to work from home to, to look at that. Um, but really, it's looking about what we need to to put in place. There's always this um, with foster carers; they have to do training on what's expected from the local authority and the, the fostering services. They do training that it's mandatory, and then I think there's also training that the foster carer wants as well and it's, it's identified lots of issues where we can support foster carers better and we can put uh, better resources in place and um, I'm pleased to say that we've worked alongside the government and the government have looked at that as well so they've provided those extra um, that extra funding hopefully that will continue so we can make sure that we um, progress alongside that. Well, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the show today, Stephen, and invite you back on at some point uh, so we can go more into this uh, incredibly important topic. Stephen, thank you. Thank you very much. That was Stephen Stockley, Managing Director of Foster Talk. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, We're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final. Sir Jeff Hurst, uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, And perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? (laughs) Well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire. 
in Liverpool, a place called uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership, it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and a manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you just think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only... Uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy in the same age group as me. And I looked at how he, how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident, I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships, and you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. 
And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Al Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, playing came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, especially with South Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, mm. Naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and of course your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He, it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time at maybe overly strict by the time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn suit and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken it on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless of that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, Jeff, you could uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be playing. In, in the team, but uh, in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think in Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games, and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay. He started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Hunt. so mm. I, I had an impact of. Thinking I at that stage I like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position, and somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up 
really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think Mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, Not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out now. So I never really felt people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people players talk about people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessarily feel any great pressure pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that, that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again the leadership that Al showed, he, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Uh, we had some great players, but overall they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And there's, I won't mention both. It's too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And, of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while, and said, "Oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch." <laughs> so that—I've uh, been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke and make a joke about that, and saying, "Yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited, to just had a, look, had a glance round, you know." Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um... Oh yeah, there are. There certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stu- stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely, but I can use that now, but it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then, but we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want, you want, you've got time, I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on, go on. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a. a at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm-hmm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? 
so the chap had the bike, and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and we... You've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. Just, but then I again, found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make then again, laugh if you laugh If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think. Um, you, you were a young man when see this happened, when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you or did you just realise that by, by quick, one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps... Uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke, and of course in, uh, England fans who um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, uh, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a uh, helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch, is people must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm-hmm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um, well, a, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think. Some of the outstanding. I think the, the best example about a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's that a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals, or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely. Mm. You've got to take him as the first example. But Klopp's only done this for a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that 
Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United. And subsequently, since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they uh, Ron Greenwood. Yeah, the, the answer, straightforward answer, is yes. Um, they, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England. Who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were I was very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many. Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And I'm going back from an earlier earlier question for me: the um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. The wives got on all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and- when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those. I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. We had some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word, the word is showed, the word is the word is team. Absolutely, and I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes, you know, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life. What would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job. Um, thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. I don't think you can switch off. 
when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level, you may, you know, have a, wait, have a couple of weeks holiday. But I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you completely focus. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to, nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go with the past and just uh, refresh my, mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.